You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to welcome Brooksy Hefner to talk about his new book, Black Pulp, Genre Fiction in the Shadow of Jim Crow. Brooksy Hefner is a professor of English at James Madison University. He is an, he's the author of The Word on the Streets, The American Language of Vernacular Modernism, and co-director of the NEH-funded Digital Humanities Project, Circulating American Magazines. Brooks, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Lance. I'm excited Thanks. to be here. I'm excited for this. It's going to be a fun episode. Um, listeners, um, Brooks has decided to um, skip our usual reading, which I will leave more time for our conversation and I'm excited by. And it will make sure you go and buy this book so you know what the reading is. Um, and I you know, give a little intrigue. Some, you, if you want to know what the words are, he's not giving it to you. You have to go and buy the book. So I love it. I love this. I love you. Have, you're taken away from the listeners, giving them a little bit of uh, mystery, you know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was the brainstorming behind it, guys. It was we, we leave you wanting more, leaving you wanting the written words. Um, but please go, please go check it out. I love the um, cover of the book, by the way. I wanted to say it's very, um, it feels like a noirish, like, I feel like I'm going to, every time I look at it, I'm like going to like, um, there's like a woman smoking on the cover, a beautiful mm-hmm. woman smoking on the cover. And I'm just like, awesome. wow, what's her story? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, I mean, I was really, I was really happy when the, when the press went with that image. It's, it's from a, a black produced film from the 1940s called uh, Dirty Gertie from Harlem, USA, which I definitely encourage people to check out. It does not show up in the book because I'm talking about all print stuff in the book. Mm-hmm. But it seemed um, very much in the time and the spirit of of what's happening in the book. So, well, and to go on that, since we're um, not doing the normal book reading, could you give um, the listeners a little um, a little you know introduction into this book through your own words, a little summary? Sure, ab- absolutely. Um, so Black Pulp is really a book that is trying to fill in some of the big gaps that we have in the history of genre fiction, and especially in the history of genre fiction um, in African-American literature. Uh, I've, I've spent a lot of time working on, um, on genre more broadly and kept coming, running up against some of these questions about you know, what was popular reading matter for Black America in the early 20th century when mm-hmm. uh, when really the genres that, that we know today are kind of being formulated mm-hmm. um, and coming together and developing all of their characteristics. And um, this really sort of happened in, in one of those strange ways that um, a lot of research happens is that you, you find one thing and that leads you to find another thing and then suddenly the floodgates have opened and you found a, a lot of things and that's kind of what happened with with this project so um so the book does a couple of things it 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 kind of goes into that world and um seeks to to shine the light on a lot of um popular fiction that has been pretty much forgotten um most of it appeared in the pages of newspapers that were um published by and for Black communities in the, in the United States. Um, many of them had national or, re, or large regional distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the one hand, it's about finding these things that people have forgotten about and elevating them as part of an important history of, of genre in the United States. Um, but the other dimension of it is, uh, is a more interpretive argument about how uh, genre formulas work and how um, ultimately, the history of genre is pretty problematic in racial terms, um, and it's, yeah, right, and it's, 
it's, it's i mean it's these are these are genres i mean i think one of the phrases that i i use um is is that most of our genres are were forged in the fires of white supremacy in the late 19th and early 20th centuries right um I mean, that i mean genre uh, as well as many other topics absolutely absolutely I, right right but i mean a part of me is hearing them like yeah <laughs> like you know that I, there's this there's i feel like um especially recently with everything that's ha that's been like all these like uh the topic of like critical race theory and the black lives matter exactly. movement everyone every time i hear like a new thing about this was affected by white supremacy and racism I'm like yeah, yeah. Right, <laughs> i mean right, right. what is it right um, right so. exactly exactly so so part of what i wanted to do in this book is highlight the ways that these writers really disassembled those genre formulas and rebuilt them in um, service of narratives that um, are really invested in racial justice. And I think we have this perception, um, I think often this is the case where we can, we can always be very presentist and think that we are so much more advanced in our thinking or so much you know, better at X or Y or Z than people were 80 years ago or 100 years ago. And in some cases is absolutely true, right? Mm -hmm. but one of the things that I thought was so fascinating about the stuff that I discovered in the pages of, of newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier and the Baltimore Afro-American is the very things that you're talking about, like critical race theory, these ideas of, and, and, and the debates, you know, like the Oscar so white debate and the, you know, and, and these, yeah. these arguments about representation. Yeah. These, these things were actually happening in, in very interesting and lively ways right. in the fiction from the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s that I, mm -hmm. that I spend most of the time talking about. And so I think it, it really is important for us to, to see this as a longer um, conversation, a longer tradition of mm -hmm. really thinking about how to remake genre for a, a more just world. Um, right. And that's, that's kind of where, you know, that, that, that's the sort of big arc of the book. And, and the, the book looks at a number of different genres. It looks at romance, looks at science fiction, right? It looks at kind of adventure stories. Um, and really thinks about how these different genres do different sorts of work in the world and how these writers, many of whom, you know, never got much credit. Um, some of them were semi-professional writers or amateur writers that they're doing writing in, um, you know, in their spare time, you know, in the evenings and weekends kind of, uh, probably not getting paid a whole lot. Um, I mean. Right. I mean, it's yeah. serial fiction for the most part. Right. Um, and it's newspapers that didn't have huge budgets. So um, I'm guessing, were there a lot of pseudonyms too for a lot of these writers? There, there were a few, um, okay. there were a few, but, uh, but actually what's interesting, what was really interesting to me is the way that writers um, who might've written for, or who, who wrote for the, um, for the African-American newspapers yeah. used pseudonyms to publish in pulp magazines. Mm, that makes sense. Right, because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they were concerned about the perception, especially if, mm -hmm. um, you know, someone, you know, might sort of suss out the fact that they were African American and, that, you know, and then suddenly there's, there's these anxieties about, you know, um, writers, yeah. writers publishing in, in pulps, which were largely a, a very white space. Um, yeah. And a space that, that, as I said, as I mentioned, you know, tended to kind of operate on some of these you know, very deeply racist assumptions. Let's not let's say that's all of Pulp Fiction, but that's the that's the kind of baseline that you're working I mean, from in the Pulp magazines. And when I, because I think of like, I mean, very racist. It's it's so funny because when I when I uh, when I like first uh, heard of your book and heard of this, I thought, yeah, I mean, you think of like the opposite with these like racist like popular stories, like you think H.P. Lovecraft, you think um oh god hp lovecraft you think um why can't i think of i mean hp lovecraft has so much there i i, it, I literally blanked right. out so many other names right but so i mean like in some ways like i don't i'm not gonna try i'm sorry if i'm shitting on a lot of your favorite authors listeners but like f scott fitzgerald has a lot yeah. of racist yeah. overtones in his books um oh again i have i read a book <laughs> um 
<laughs> Listeners, I read. I can promise you. I promise you. I did not scam my way into this by pretending I can read. I promise I did not. Um, no, but I mean, there were so many authors from that time who were like writing overtly, overtly oh, racist things. Absolutely, absolutely. Like, to find out. I mean, this also reminded me of like, you know, the Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the mm-hmm. sense of this city that was prospering and no one really knew about it mm-hmm. um, until exactly. recently because like it was hidden from a lot of uh, in a lot of like history contexts and history and talks about history and uh you know the deep-rooted racism in it too was you know hidden from a lot of things um, absolutely absolutely right and and i felt like you know for, for my own work as a, as a scholar lance you know when i when i started working on this project i'd, I'd been thinking a lot about race and, and popular genres, one of the things that is, I've come back to repeatedly in my, in my, my work. Um, mm-hmm. But I got really tired of kind of splitting hairs mm-hmm. about like, well, this, this writer is just a, is a little bit less racist than this other writer, right? right? Um, and I thought, this isn't really a productive, you know, way to go about this. And I, yeah. and I sort of, you know, decided I, I need to I need to kind of scrap this and see if I can actually look for um, something in popular genre that really has a, an anti-racist agenda. And I mean, if you're going to do this, you you actually you have to go to black publishers and black writers. Yeah. And I think that was so key for me. Um, and and really, kind of the goal is is to to shine the the light on these long forgotten um, writers who didn't get the credit they really deserved, I think. I mean, once again, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but right. also like with that, I mean, I feel like a lot of, you know, a lot of the, usually when you hear this, a lot of the, or when people are like, oh, I want to find this, but you know, there's probably not a lot of writers like this. They. Uh, they look for new writers because like, you know, back then there was not a lot of writers uh, of color, but it's like, no, there was, you just weren't looking and no one was, right. you have to, it's, it's the work that they don't, a lot of um, people don't want to do to actually right. look for it because there, it, there's a lot more work in trying to find these writers and publishers because they had to like, they were buried um, or you know, had hidden or had to do their, or publish their stuff in ways that weren't as uh, popular or um, promoted as, you know, the white authors and other publishers. And people don't want to do that work. So it's just, it's. And you're absolutely right, Lance. And and I think one thing that is, that it adds difficulty to is Mm -hmm. um, there is an archival problem when it comes yeah. to black, when it comes to black print, right? Um, so the newspapers that I spent the most, well, I, I've I have so many weird anecdotes. So sorry if I overload you with the weird research anecdotes, but Go for um, it. but you know, there's uh, the, the two newspapers that I spend the most time on. One one was out of Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh Courier, and one was out of um, Baltimore, the Baltimore Afro American. Afro is still running. Um, it's one of the longest yes. running, I think it may be the longest running black newspaper in the United mm-hmm. States, um, still does very important work and has especially been doing a lot of great work um, during mm-hmm. the pandemic, yes. um, covering uh, black community in, in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I think is really w- was was surprising, I mean, these were large circulation newspapers, they were not small fly by night operations. Baltimore. Afro-American actually had, you know, uh, publications in other cities, um, Richmond, DC, they had other editions that, that you know, kind of in the, in the region. Mm-hmm. But there are almost, I, I, I mean, I think the Afro-American actually has an archive where all of, where they have all of the copies of, of the newspaper or virtually all the copies. Mm-hmm. But the only place most people can access anything is either on microfilm or through a digital service. And e- mm-hmm. even that is incomplete. I mean, these are some of the most widely circulated black newspapers in the 20th century. Right. Pittsburgh Courier, Baltimore Afro-American, missing issues, missing pages from issues. It's it's really a, a bit of a mess. Um, a little, a, like a library of the library, library of Alexandria, like kind yeah, of thing. Right. It's, it, like, that, it, it's like that kind of thing. There's, yeah. uh, there, there's one um, series that I talk about here 
um, in the book um, by a really fascinating writer named Gertrude, Gertrude Schalk. Um, mm. And it's set in a Harlem cabaret. Mm -hmm. um, and it's each story is about a different dancer in the cabaret. Mm -hmm. um, and this was published in um, a, a smaller circulation newspaper based in New York called the mm -hmm. National News. Very short lived. It was run by another figure that I talk about in, in the book, George Schuyler. Uh, there is maybe one place in the country that has any physical copies of this newspaper. That's wow. it. Because because they, they threw them out. People mm -hmm. threw them out. You know, newspapers right. were already seen as kind of ephemeral objects that you didn't need to worry about keeping because yesterday, right. who cares about yesterday's news? Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, for African-American newspapers, this was sort of, you know, a double, doubly uh, violent yeah. um, kind of um, uh, act in terms of just erasing some of the record of these important newspapers. And there are many papers, there's not, there's nothing, there's nothing left. We know they existed, but we don't know, um, we don't have any access to them. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that people don't know about this is that it's access is hard. And in some mm -hmm. cases, it's just lost. Well, it seems to like, I mean, I would assume because I mean, in an amazing way, but also in kind of a sad, depressing way, everything, you know, black people have done to like, you know, promote uh, themselves is an act of, is a act of revolution in a way yeah, of right. trying to like, you know, be an act of revolution, an act of protest, an act of like, it has to be an act of something, right. which white oppressors, of course, see as, um, you know, an attack on their white norm normalcy, uh, sure. attack on them, attack on their ideals and beliefs, which it is only because this this country specifically, but this world in a lot of ways, is anti-black. So anything mm -hmm. pro-black is revolutionary. So right. I have to assume that hurts too the preservation of that history, because white oppression would not want that his the the anything historical or of like black historical context to right. thrive. So, right. I mean that's that's the story of of the the forgetting Tulsa, right? Is yeah, exactly. Right. It's exactly what you're talking about, right? Exactly what you're talking about. Or the any kind of revisionist history. I think of exactly a lot of the one that I whenever I think of revisionist history, I remember in middle school being taught the Alamo and how like, you know, the heroes right. of the Alamo were um the sure. americans the what 100 americans who died mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. and then i i look i think back and i'm like wait didn't weren't the um wasn't mexico that side the only ones who weren't the only people they didn't kill were the slaves because they were like oh these people were forced to be in this position so we mm -hmm. will not touch them and i'm like wait <laughs> then, wait hold on right uh, wouldn't you say they're the heroes then? The ones right. who weren't killing slaves? I would assume they're the heroes there. And that's why I think of with revisionist history of like right. people Absolutely. doing things like that. I I mean, and that that I feel like, you know, that that idea of like revising history, this wouldn't be good. Like story fiction, black fictional stories right. that would last what a hundred years now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not, they wouldn't want that. Right. So right. it makes sense that it's very hard to find. Yeah. Um, why this specific time period, though, from the 20s to the early 50s or late 40s? Usually, like, they, I, most of it ends in the early 50s. Um, early 50s, okay. So, so part of the way that I, I kind of came across this is, mm -hmm. was an interest in pulp magazines. And th that's also the, the kind of heyday of pulp magazines in right. the United States, right? They, they sort of begin in the teens-ish. They really take off in the late 20s, mm -hmm. um, survive the Depression. Um, but then in the early 50s, the uh, pocket paperback appears. I guess it's the late 40s, really. And then, but then by the early 50s, the paperback original sort of shows up. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, you know, people would rather, would rather buy a, uh, you know, salacious pocket paperback that they can stuff in their pocket. Um, All right and you know get on the bus or the train or or what have you then you know then buy one of these larger magazines um right. that are that are just um full of stories people want a longer narrative and and mm -hmm. that sort of thing and so 
in some ways, what I'm talking about really parallels the pulp magazine peak. Um, black newspapers had fiction really from the very beginning in the 19th century. Um, and there's some really some scholars that do really terrific work on the 19th century. Up through the 20s, kind of the mid 20s, most of the fiction that appeared in, in these newspapers was, was kind of didactic, right? It was really, um, it was really, uh, I think I use the word tendentious in, in the book. So it, it you know, it, it sort of promoted a very particular um, um, idea, right? So it was idea driven, um, first and foremost, right? So, um, and, and in some ways, uh, some of the work that appeared in those newspapers has already, at that point, has already been recovered or or it was reprinting people like Charles Chestnut or um, or or other other writers like that. But in the late 1920s, uh, some of the newspapers start experimenting with genre fiction. And that's when you first see the newspapers really publishing a lot of original genre fiction. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a little tabloid insert that um, showed up in late 1928 that was distributed, I think 34 different newspapers had it at one point, or that's what they claimed, probably had a circulation of, of over 200,000 um, nationwide. So wow. really large circulation. Yeah. Um, and it really is churning out new original genre fiction um, for three or four years. And it's actually owned by a white advertiser, which is a problem, um, but it's edited by a couple of really interesting um, figures. Uh, one of them was uh, George Schuyler, who was also a writer and uh, has a very weird history. Um, in the, you know, he was a socialist in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. By the 1960s, he is like shilling for the John Birch Society and calling out, uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther King as a communist and all this sort of, of stuff. But in the oh, 19... I can only imagine him talking about Malcolm X. Oh God! Right, right. <laughs> in, in in the 1930s, he's still he's still really kind of interested in forms of black liberation. So, you know, he's he's one of the first editors, and then the second editor um, actually became uh, Ben Davis Jr., who later became the lawyer who defended the labor organizer Angelo Herndon, and Ben Davis then becomes elected to New York City Council as a communist. Uh, on the Communist Party ticket, so it's so really interesting wow. figures, yeah. right? Who so are like people, who are involved? Yeah, yeah, like people who. I mean, like it seems like a lot of like origin stories for a lot of like important yeah. figures in our in American history. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So these these two guys are involved as editors mm -hmm. um, with this, and then once this uh, tabloid section essentially peters out because I think no one trusts the owner advertiser. Um, the the biggest newspapers that were carrying it start just editing their own fiction. It's like the appetite, they, they discovered the appetite was there mm -hmm. and they run with it. And so uh, the Pittsburgh Courier produces um, or publishes genre fiction through the end of the 1930s. And then the Baltimore Afro-American is going strong into the early 1950s um, every week. It's, it, was, it was great. I mean, it's really a kind of very cool story about this one little thing that then mm -hmm. sets off all this other stuff, right? It, I like, kind of want to go back to what you were saying about how they, they were owned by this, or yeah, owned by white advertise or yeah. advertiser, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, one, it sounds very familiar, or very, yes. very familiar, or very um, relevant now when you see a lot mm -hmm. of like, I mean, I feel like there's a, there's for the, I was going to say for the past 10 years, but 20 years, 100 years, there's been a conversation about, you know, white publishers and edit, white editors being in charge of like, you know, the work of Black people right. coming in and being, I mean, I was just watching the, sh the show Love Life, the second season okay. of it. I don't know if you watched that, I but seen one of the main characters is an editor and like one of the main problems is that his bosses or junior editor and all of his bosses are white and they're right. saying, oh, we don't know if Afrofuturism will sell or we don't know if this black author, well, we haven't, there's right. an audience for them. Right. And so they're right. kind of like uh, gatekeeping mm -hmm. the work, even though they have, like the main character is black still, but like they're, he's, 
they're like, oh, we'll have this black guy, you know, do his thing, but we're still in charge of it. And it right. seems like that, you know, that's almost no, parallel to this. Right. I mean, and it's, I mean, it's, it's a history as long as the, you know, uh, narratives of enslavement, right? Where yeah. you had to have like a white abolitionist write the intro to right. sort of, you know, authorize what was coming after it. I mean, um, I, what do you think of black liberation or slavery? The, who's who's the name you always hear? Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and right, I'm like, right, right, it's like, right. he's freed the slaves. I'm like, all right, <laughs> there's a lot more to that story. Sure. But, right, yeah, right. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, no. And, and I mean, you're right. I mean, this was particularly a, a big deal in this period because, mm. you know, especially, you know, this sort of starts at the peak of the Harlem Renaissance and, um, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, I mean, there were white editors and publishing houses that made a ton of money during the white winners or during the this this moment because mm -hmm. um, you know they were thinking like oh well it is um, you know what Langston Hughes said when when the Negro was in vogue right so mm -hmm. that's what he called the moment right is this mm -hmm. sense in which people wanted to buy books it was it was fashionable to buy and support black writers and artists. Um, yeah. And so, you know, you had patrons and you had other people involved controlling. What's, what seems to be the case here is that, um, that he, this guy was pretty business minded um, and he wanted to make a buck. He was an advertising agent. Um, I didn't find any evidence that he really put, sort of controlled the content. Um, he, he, he was playing a sort of long game that failed. Um, he was essentially trying to use it as leverage to sort of start a kind of um, associated press type news service and mm. kind of have a monopoly on that for black newspapers, but it didn't mm. work. Right. So he, he later goes on to found a, a, a totally different magazine company that, you know, did not have anything to do with, um, with these black newspapers. So, um, you know, the, the really interesting thing though is that the editors who were involved, um, at least Skyler goes on and really, I think, um, Carl Murphy for the Afro-American became heavily involved toward the end of the sections run and, and they really take control. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's a, a bit more, um, I don't know, encouraging of a story um, about control and, and um, representation and decision-making than, than you normally hear, which is part of what really intrigued me about this, this whole phenomenon. It sounds, I mean, like London, it, it's, I feel like it's one of those uh, studies in history to like really understand also what's happening today too mm -hmm. with it. I mean, like, cause history repeats itself, but it also sounds like, you know, there's another story about a white man in charge, you know, yep. using black art to, you know, to, sure. to, to use, use yeah. black art to, as a stepping stone for more things, which like, right. Absolutely. is also like not anything, not anything. It's not, history it's still happening today right. it's not right it's not um it's it's not new and it's not old it's right. current it's contemporary right. um i want to ask you um because you are not black but you're covering this heavily um black topic sure how how was it for you um coming into this uh, as a one researcher and writer and, you know, collector of these facts, not being Black and, you know, going on this journey for yourself, because I imagine there must have been a lot of inner turmoil for you about covering this and a lot of, you know, in dialogue with yourself on how do I do this in a respectful way. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the question a lot, Lance, and mm -hmm. um, and you're right. I mean, it, it's you know, I'm a I'm a white guy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, I have spent a lot of time writing about um, race um, in the work of white and black writers in the United States, but you know, mm -hmm. probably more uh, working more with with white writers. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that there was you know there was a moment. Um, for me, where I really felt like I needed um, to use the privilege and access that I had to stuff like, you know, these databases and, and whatnot, um, to try to be a microphone for, um, for a lot of these um, authors that people had, had sort of left behind. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I really wanted in this book not to, I, I, I didn't want the book to be um, comprehensive um, in any, in any way. Mm -hmm. um, I, because I didn't want to give the impression that I, that I somehow controlled or mastered all of this work. Right. right. You know, I, I, I think, um, you know, I, I wanted this to be sort of uh, uh, the opening of a door, right, mm -hmm. for other people to encounter this material, um, and for me to kind of step out of the way and let them, and let them see. And there's there's a lot of uh, because the, there's so little of this is is easily accessible. Um, there's a lot of summary in in the book in terms of you know, talking about different series and characters and and and, um, and and for that reason, I really kind of wanted to. Be someone who amplify these voices because mm -hmm. i feel like it's super important right now and i think you know we're in a moment where we really are thinking a lot about you know the intersection of race and genre more broadly it's i mean it's one of the i mean i think it's one of the most interesting things that's happening right now yeah. um you know you you mentioned lovecraft and lovecraft's having a weird moment but in part he's having a weird moment because you have black writers who are writing back right right N.K. Jemisin, Victor Laval, people like that, who are doing these really interesting kind of transformations, which is part of what I'm sort of arguing that these these um, writers are doing in the 19, 1930s. Yeah. Right. So, so you know, I, I came at this again. Hopefully, um, it comes across in the in in the book, but mm -hmm. with great respect for what these writers were accomplishing, mm -hmm. um, and with an intent to amplify and to um, broadcast some of these um, exciting uh, examples of anti-racist genre fiction that you know are just are just otherwise lost to um, to contemporary readers and i think also this idea that you know as you mentioned before the, the hysteria around critical race theory and all this sort of stuff that's happening right now I mean, part, part of this is, uh, I, I mean, I, I finished the book long before, you know, CRT was something that, you know, an acronym people cared about. Um, right. And it's, um, it's so crazy hearing that conversation being like, what? Do you guys think it's new? But this is part of the idea, right? Is to say, right. well, no, I mean, there, there were these writers and some of it is about, you know, being the, you know, being able to, to, to help get recognition for the writers, for the publication venues, for the print history that is that is really rich in, uh, especially in, in African-American newspapers. Um, there's a lot of this early on. Um, and to give credit to people for making really interesting innovations in, in what we think of as these really static, uh, sometimes mm -hmm. very static genres. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I hopefully that kind of makes sense. Um, you know, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it was also, I think I started this research on this around um, the first emergence of the Black Lives Matter hashtag. Mm -hmm. and, and I think for you know, a lot of, many scholars, not certainly mm -hmm. not all scholars, but many scholars mm -hmm. I think um, really were concerned or thinking about you know, how can I make uh, meaningful, how can I do meaningful research? And I think, I mean, there is, especially for, um, I mean, for white scholars trying to do research, I know that there is always a worry of like, oh, am I using, again, like we were saying before with the white advertiser, am I using this to, am I using these black topics to, um, to you know, further my own goals? Sure, yeah, and, yeah. And I mean, there are others who don't even ask that question and do it. I, um, there's, <laughs> I mean, I, as there's like today as we talk there is today is uh january 6th the yep um and the one year anniversary of the insurrection and i yes. mean there are a lot of white politicians out there right now who are using that for their own political gain yep and mm -hmm. then i think of there's other books there's a a book by an author whose name i won't say but a, which which is like a thoughtful critique on I'll tell you afterwards who it is um, after the re-record but it was a thoughtful critique on his opinion on a famous black writer's work where I'm just like this only seems to be for your benefit for your benefit and so I know right. a lot of black people right. specifically have that fear of um sure of just like oh is this is this what there's like a little bit of you know 
fear of like, oh, am I being used instead of right. studied? Or uh, how, like, how would you tell other, <laughs> how would you tell other white people in your, in the in academia who want to study topics like this to go about it? Wow, oh, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think. Um, or advise, so, no, you know. To, yeah, oof, yeah, oof. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, gosh. Um, I mean, I do think that that it's important to recognize all of the the all of the folks who have been part of the project, and I, I really tried to do this in, for example, in the acknowledgments where, mm -hmm. you know, I, I I had worked with so many terrific archivists and and librarians mm -hmm. who were w without whom the project would just simply just wouldn't exist, right? right. Um, and the archives. Um, you know, there was a lot of weird detective work that had me, you know, running, running down obscure writers and trying to find their descendants and, you know, again, trying to um, give as much credit as you can to the, the people whose work you are uh, working to, to amplify. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's, that's important. So all the credit across the board is as much as possible. Um, you know, I was fortunate to be able to present some of this work um, early on in my own institution um, in what's called the, the uh, at that point it was called the Africana Literature and, and Cultures Workshop, kind of workshopping it with um, a lot of, a lot of, a real diverse group of faculty um, who put it together. Um, and so I think working with colleagues um, and friends, um, getting feedback as much as possible, um, not trying to claim ownership over anything or, you know, I think that's a really big, big, um, big thing to, to deal with. Um, and again, that's kind of the, the idea that the book is a, is an opening. Um, and I hope mm -hmm. that, I hope that people will come and disagree or build or amplify, you know, uh, challenge or, you know, extend, mm -hmm. um, some of the claims that I'm making here. Um, I think it's really important, but I also think, I mean, I think the flip side of this Lance is, is that I think that it's, um, I think white, white literature scholars have an ethical obligation to, um, to contend with uh, black literature. Yeah. Like I, I think that it's, because I think the, the idea that, um, that white scholars need, should stay away or should, you know, um, I, I'm sure that, um, that all of us have, have stepped in it at times and, and made, you know, made gaffes. And um, I, I certainly know that, you know, that, that I've been guilty of that, but I think we, we have a, we have an obligation to, to center those mm -hmm. um, as part of the, you know, the national literary history and the national conversation. Um, Cause I think that's precisely, you talk about January 6th, the whole, I mean, yeah. this is all about decentering experiences of right. black people, right? Exactly. And, and so, I mean, that's, I apologize for my slightly clumsy answer. I, I don't know that it could be <laughs> no, anything I, other than clumsy, but, um, but I, mean, I, think, I think, yeah, I, hopefully that makes yeah, sense. It's, I mean, there's no, there's no easy answer. Yeah, there there's, is no easy there's answer. There's no easy answer. So it has to yeah. be, I mean, clumsy, if clumsy is better than no answer. Right. And <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> no, and right. also like, I feel like there's, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, like a, fear of being wrong in the fight back a lot of a lot of the um whenever i hear white scholars though whenever i hear white scholars who i disagree with talk about it their first it's usually because they don't have the ability to be critiqued they are right i'm right i and usually it's it's a lot older you know scholars who are like i been doing this for years and right, I, right like the rigidness of it they're like right. i know I know right. what I'm talking about and you're wrong kind of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. especially the white scholars you're talking about who want, who need to like center, um, not or decenter white, white, uh, literature, his, white literature history and white literature mm -hmm. context and all this, they need to also be <laughs> willing to be, to say I'm wrong. Right. Yeah, they absolutely. Need to be willing to be go up, go up there on the podium and say, I'm wrong because the people whose experiences I'm researching and I'm um, doing the work on tells me I'm wrong. Right. There's, there's, and I mean, like, there's that for 
topics of women, topics of queerness, topics of um, indigenous culture and um, like um, South American culture, um, on and on, uh, like <laughs> the list goes on. Yeah, um, absolutely. But there's, there's like, there's, we always, we all have to be able to say, oh, I, I hurt, I, I was wrong in this example and I am right. keep on continuing the journey to be better because no one's perfect. Yeah. We all know. That's right. That's right. They, You're absolutely to right. quote, to quote, I feel like I quote this a lot, but like to quote one of my favorite television shows, they're, the reason they make uh, razors on pencils, because we all make mistakes. There you <laughs> we go. We all make mistakes. Right, right. Um, and you know, in we're white, white culture, we're coming for you. You're over, your time is done. <laughs> your time is over. I'm, I'm announcing it right now on this <laughs> episode. It's done, you had your chance, it's over. Um, um, well, you can put that on. You can put that down. It's over. Um, the last thing I want to ask you, because sadly we have to wrap up soon. Um, even though this has been so much fun, I keep on for like three yeah, hours, it's been, but it's been great. It's been so much fun. The last thing I want to ask you, though, you have a you have a extensive background in academia and on the topics of like American fiction, like popular. Um, like genres you talked you said it earlier genre writing um film um film uh culture um you know some contemporary culture to contemporary like fiction too um less so less so less Mm. so i'm i I tend to be an early 20th century type type scholar but um yeah yeah but i mean you've you've taught this and you've researched this a lot in your career after writing and researching this book, have you found that a lot of the things that you're researching or the context that you're looking at all of this and has changed? Um, what exactly do you mean? Like in teaching um, right. like American uh, fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Or if, when you're in your, or researching like the silent film era or- mm-hmm. um, Sure, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like uh, even like literature and music and all sure. this mm-hmm. from this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that you've seen like, you know, uh, or now that you've researched how black, the, right. the kind of gatekeeping of uh, black fiction writing or mm-hmm. uh, genre writing or all these things, has your context of all of what you've learned changed? Has the context oh, I, of uh, like how a lot of these authors that you might have um, taught before been like, oh wait, I learned that blah, blah, blah was affected by maybe right. that author in that way. Right, well, yeah, I think, um, I think for sure. I mean, I think we're, we're you know, part of the, the, you know, the way that I, I, I think about it in, in, in the mm-hmm. book is, um, is using a sort of uh, this term articulation where everything's kind of connected to everything else, right? And right. some of those connections are invisible to us until we see them, right? right. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that, um, you know, Toni Morrison has this really great um, book, a very short book about American literature called Playing in the Dark. Mm-hmm. And part of what she talks about there is the kind of, the, the way that, um, African-American experiences are kind of always in, you know, somewhere, they're always sort of present in, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about Fitzgerald is a really great example, right? Mm -hmm. And that it's very easy if you, you want to center whiteness to just forget about those parts. Right. Right. (laughs) And, um, and I think one of the things that has been really interesting for me in doing this work is, 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 is reading some of these stories made me realize um, the way that the formulas are actually working in some of the other, like the, the sort of mainstream sort of white pulp writing. Um, because when you see, when you see a writer, you know, who, who is not even really getting paid much, you might even be just, you know, writing on the nights and weekends, kind of disassemble and reassemble the genre in a way that you're like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. that's, so this becomes like, a really devastating critique of the formula of these other of these other things. So it's always kind of on my mind now when I'm looking at genre fiction, um, you know how it how it wants to present race, how it wants to think about um, questions of racial justice, 
right. um, or or ignore them entirely, right? Um, I think one of the chapters that I had the the most um, some in some ways the most fun with in this was the chapter on romance because you think romance is like the most apolitical genre ever, right? Right. But it's only apolitical, you know, if you are ignoring the kind of the the, the sort of boundaries yeah. um, that are of acceptable. Um, uh, let's say pairings, right? Right. Um, exactly. Within within the stories, and so once you sort of begin to step back and see that, then suddenly you know you can see how some uh, writers that that I, that I talk about in the book are really interested in upending that, um, mm -hmm. upending who's an acceptable partner, or you know what's an acceptable kind of woman to be in a romance story. Th those sorts of things, I think, are actually really um, you know part of what I've I think I've taken away from. Uh, the research that that went into this to this project. No, I mean that. Yeah, I feel like that's something that, like you know, a person who gets that gets that you no know, gift of like, which is happening right now. I think, especially in like a lot of like our new uh, pop culture, um, in the sense of like, I mean, Watchmen. Um, sure. The, right. that opened up a lot of eyes on like oh wow this is oof, look at this look at what we did but i mean a lot of books i'm reading are talking about like the tuskegee um experiments mm -hmm. yep. they're talking they're using but they're they're not talking about it in like a this is what happened they're talking about like how it it affected culture or like right. in in fiction like how it can right. how like this was a big part of history enough that it should be included in fiction work. Absolutely. Like, I'm watching Underground Railroad, the, mm -hmm. the yeah, show. Based on, like, yeah. yeah, based on the Colson Whitehead book, right. which is a, a fantastic book. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's we're seeing that on screen. We're seeing something like that on screen. We saw the mm -hmm. Lovecraft Country tackle mm -hmm. it. Right. We saw, I was there's a YA book that I was reading, The Black Kids, that talk that like talks about how it talk it relates the um, Rodney King riots to oh, wow, yeah. to the Tulsa massacre, like how like yeah. how those two separate things can be related. Right. And like it's just it's it's so important to think about like why why this wasn't talked about before and also maybe it was talked about before but why we right. didn't know about it right exactly yeah. exactly um, no and i think that's a oh sorry go on no i mean and that's i think the, uh, your point is is right on you know um i mean in the ways you know the one of the really kind of interesting things about that i that i um ran into here because these were Printed, these were published in newspapers that sometimes there's like the front of the paper and the back of the paper talking yeah. about the same thing right so right. there's a whole you know serial about um you know racial covenants in housing mm -hmm. and that and it was happening the serial was happening as the supreme court was um was hearing a case um on the constitutionality of racial of, of racially based covenants for for mm -hmm. housing purchases and so that sense of of how the fiction can speak directly to the moment um and and can take up some of these big issues i think is 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 really part of what you know what i wanted to highlight some the amazing um and really fascinating genre work that some of these writers were doing like bring it into an adventure story but also think about how you know how, how can we imagine solutions to this exactly and like and, yeah. I feel like sometimes, oh God, this not to talk about your book in any context related to this at all, but sometimes you see some of these topics um, hidden in academic academia because a lot of a lot of the world doesn't ha don't have access to a lot of academic text right. or access to like a lot of um, language that academia holds, so they might not be able to get through the text to find it. So a book like this, where it's like, oh, no, this there was fiction, there were stories, mm -hmm. there were these things that were told that, like, did the work, did that. They tried yeah. to reach the public, because, like, stories are, have, throughout time, have been how, like, regular people have been able to, like, 
get information about things, right. open their mind on things. Right. And, so and, like, and process problems and imagine solutions to those problems. Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, it's, it's all metaphorical. It's like all like, um, not metaphorical, what's the word I'm looking for? It's all metaphorical kind of, like fiction is metaphors on like how we process things mm -hmm. in the real world. So why can't, I mean, I feel like a lot of uh, there there was a agenda of hiding them in academia for so sure. long that it needs to be brought out to the light and i think like a book like yours and like the fiction we're getting the blacks the specifically black but also like a lot of other cultures that those stories that are being told now are important for that work so oh, that's fantastic Thanks. well no thank you for bringing this book to us we i listeners please check it out there's i mean there is a lot of interesting and a lot of really good topics or fictions like research that you've dug up on these stories that need to be done. And I feel like, especially now in 2022, where we're gonna be seeing, I feel it that we're gonna be seeing a lot more of these stories on um, page and screen told, it's, it's so important to know the history of that. And especially if you're making these stories, do your research, you might find, you might find the next a watchman in this, you know, the next um, Lovecraft country series in this. Right. Um, right. But it's worth it to check out. Um, thank you so much, Brooks. This was so fantastic. Thank you, Lance. I really appreciate it. No, this was a great, this was a great, great episode. Um, but do you have any last words you'd like to say to our listeners or the independent bookstore community as a whole? I would just say support your local independent bookstore. Um, buy lots of books, read lots of books. Um, yeah. And um, I hope to get out to, to Skylight sometime, uh, sometime in the future. Oh, we would love to have you come over. <laughs> um, well, thank you. Thank you, Brooks. Thank you so much to our listeners. Um, I am always so happy for you to come back. But if you're listening for the first time, welcome. We have a big catalog of episodes and we have a great, great lineup coming up for you in the for in 2022 so check that out as well but thank you for listening today and i hope you have a great and rest a great rest of your day do something nice for yourself see the sun if you can but if you can't hold out it's coming look at a picture of the sun <laughs> um no you have a great rest of your day everyone bye Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.